0: Okay, so all throughout this sermon series, we've been talking about the theme of Philippians, which is joy, yes, okay, we'll try that again. Okay. So, all throughout the sermon series, we've been talking about the theme of Philippians, which is joy, joy. yes, okay. Uh, what are some things that you have learned about joy so far, like where joy comes from? Yeah, joy can come through suffering. Winning by losing, yes. We've talked about that. That's on the front of those uh, devotionals that we passed out, right? That uh, that Philippians would tell us, that God would tell us through Philippians that actually it's in our losing that we find joy. Surrendering control. Surrendering control, right? That that's a place that we find joy. Being Being united with Christ, yes. Huge part of it. we spent a lot of time in our first week talking about how our union with Christ is really the source of all of the blessing that we have in Christ, including our joy. So we're gonna continue to build on that theme today as we talk about where it is that we find our joy as Christians. Uh, so if you guys have your Bibles, you can open up to Philippians 2. That's where we're gonna be. And uh, I'm gonna start by asking, have any, of you, have any of you ever read the book The Prince and the Pauper? by Mark Twain. Maybe you're familiar with the Disney version. It's like Mickey Mouse and, no? Okay, well, it's a book. And uh, the idea the idea of this book is that there are two, two boys who are born on the same day in like medieval England, okay? And they look exactly the same, but they don't know each other. And they eventually bump into each other. One of them is uh, like a, uh, I'm trying to think of the word for it, like a waif, a serf, like a, low, a low-born person who has a really hard life. And then the other, the other kid is a prince. He's he's in line to become king. And so they run into each other, and as they get to know each other, they realize, wow, we look a lot alike. We are born on the same day. Let's, what do you think they do? Trade places. Of course, that's what they do, okay? So they trade places, and uh, they get to experience each other's lives. And lo and behold, the prince realizes that life for the average person is way harder than he knew. And then eventually, you know, the king dies, and so the prince is about to become king, but he's not really the prince, he's actually the other guy. And so, you know, the, uh, the, the other guy comes back in, the prince, the real prince comes back in and can prove that he's the prince, and so they switch places, and the guy who was the pauper kind of becomes his advisor for the rest of his reign, and he reigns with mercy and justice and compassion, and he becomes a really good king. And that story isn't just, uh, that's like a theme in, in our stories. This like theme of someone with power being undercover. And when that person with power comes undercover, they learn what it's like to be a normal person. And that is such a compelling theme for us, because what we know about power is that power often creates distance from suffering, or it it appears that power creates distance from suffering. It's not, it's not actually true that everyone actually experiences suffering, but but often power seems to create the illusion of insulation from suffering. And so there's this kind of great reversal that takes place as someone with power then comes into the average person's shoes and realizes how hard life is. That's not what's happening in our scripture today, okay? (laughs) It's a long way to say it's not what's happening in our scripture today. The scripture is about Jesus coming down and taking on human form, taking on flesh. But it's not about Jesus doing that so that he can learn something about what it means to be human. It's not because Jesus lacked empathy and needed to come and learn a lesson. That Jesus chose to do that. He chose to put down his power actually because he knew our state more than we even know it ourselves. That because of his great love for us and because of his great awareness of our need, Jesus set aside his power and he came came to us. He put on our flesh and became one of us. In that and that what the scripture is telling us today, that as we sit in that narrative, that story, that reality, that that actually changes us. That it changes our minds and our hearts and the way that we live and that, that as we embrace that humility that Jesus had as he came for us, that that actually is a place that we've been joy in our own lives. Okay, so that's where we're going today. So if, you're, if you have your Bibles, we open to Philippians 2. We're going to be in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Pray with me. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. Lord, that these aren't just words on a page, but these are words that describe uh, what it was like when y- spiritual reality uh Burst into our physical reality, Lord. Would you, uh, would you shape our minds and our hearts and our hands with what you've given us in the Scripture today, Amen. So we're going to focus kind of in two two main places this morning. It's it's in how this passage gives us the model of Christ, and then how this passage gives us the mind of Christ. So this passage gives us the model of Christ and the mind of Christ. So if you're a note-taking person, those are your two. Those are your two sections. Okay. So the model of Christ. That's where we're starting. So what we have in these verses are, they follow right after what we talked about last week, right? Which was this call toward humility. Verse four says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then we get what we just read. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on, Paul goes on to describe what is ours in Christ Jesus. he's trying to help the Philippians grasp, but what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? What is the pattern of Christ's life? And what he, what he does here is he immerses them into the story of who Christ is. And what I, what I love about this is Paul's is actually setting this story to song. That these verses, if you depending on the version of the Bible that, that you're reading out of, uh, often these verses are set off and kind of indented like if you're reading a psalm, and that's because Uh, these verses are actually a hymn. So this description of Christ and and who he is and what he came to do was something that was originally set to song in the early church. And we don't know the tune of that song, but we're pretty confident that it was a song. And, And it's so important because songs are one of the few things in our lives that they transport us into other places so clearly, don't they? Like what is the song for you that when you hear it takes you back into your past? And sometimes it can be a good thing, right, or a hard thing, but it, but it immerses you into a, a different frame of mind and it pulls our heart and our, even our will sometimes into a different place when we're listening to a song, doesn't it? What is that song for you? You don't have to tell me, actually. You can just think about it. Last week, we talked about how the song of God over us is God's affection for us. And we talked about how the call is that we would be living, that we'd be dancing to that song in our everyday lives, like we're part of a silent disco, Right? I won't belabor that analogy anymore, but you you have the headphones. I am gonna belabor it. So you have the headphones on and you can hear the song. No one else knows what you're listening to, but you're dancing to it. Okay, we'll just go with that. So we talked about the song of the silent disco of God's affection playing over us. What happens in this passage is that Paul is giving us the words to that song, okay? So think about it like that. Paul's giving us the words to the song of God's affection that he's singing over us that we're called to dance to out in our lives. So we're gonna work through then the lyrics of that song. And I'll tell you, it is heady stuff. You can spend a lot, there are a lot of books that have been written on just this chunk of verses that are all about uh, Christology, which is, who is the person of Jesus? What did he come to do? We're not gonna spend the the whole sermon here, but it's important that we start to wrap our minds around what does scripture actually teach us about who Jesus is? Okay, so we're gonna start in verse six. This is yours in Christ Jesus, and then it goes on to describe Christ Jesus in verse six who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Okay. So though he was in the form of God. What this is telling us is that Jesus is, is, is God. that He's the likeness of God. Hebrews 1:3 tells us that he's the radiance of God. He's the exact imprint of His nature. It's drawing a connection. It's saying that Jesus is equal in power and glory to God the Father. And it's meant to draw us into awe of who Jesus is. Right, like, I was on a hiking trip a few years ago. I don't hike very often, but I've done it occasionally. And when you get out in, in creation, it's crazy. You can actually see the stars, right? Remember looking up, uh, kind of looking over the Pacific Ocean and w- seeing the sky come, kind of like meet the ocean? And it's, it's beautiful, it's awesome, right? He took my breath away. And when we look at things that are that big, it usually makes us feel small, right? And what we're called to remember, scripture this is all over scripture, is that when we feel small against the bigness of nature, that our God is bigger than that bigness. He's the God who created that bigness, who spoke spoken into existence, who holds it all in the palm of his hands. And so, in verse six, when it says he was, Jesus was in the form of God, what it's communicating to us is that Jesus is that, he deserves that same kind of awe as God the Father deserves. As the preexistent Son of God, he always has been and always will be. But, but this Jesus Christ, this preexistent Son of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And what that means is that though Jesus was equal with God in every way, that he is God, that he didn't think about how he's gonna use that power to benefit himself, that his thought was, how do I use this power then to benefit the people that I love? That he chose to use that power to serve. And all the rest of the verses that describe how Jesus lived on earth is an expression of this choice that he made to come and to leverage that power for our benefit. Okay, so that's verse six. Then verse seven. It says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When it says that Jesus emptied himself, don't think of it like taking out your trash and like dumping the trash out of it. That's not what we're talking about. Like, it's not that there's a receptacle that was full and then it's dumped out and now it's empty that kind of leads us down some strain, strange paths and it has led people down those in various points in history. Like Jesus put away his divinity, he left that out, that's not what it's saying at all. When it says that Jesus emptied himself, another way of saying it is that he considered himself nothing or he, he thought nothing of himself to kind of put, put it in an English idiom. So again, it just reinforces what we were talking about. It's kind of the flip side of the coin. He didn't didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And then when he did that, he took the form of a servant. So it would have been humbling enough for Jesus, right? The pre-incarnate Son of God to come to earth and take on our flesh. That would have been humbling enough, right? But it was more than that. When he came to earth and he put on our flesh, he didn't just take the form of a person, he took the form of a lowly person. The same word for servant here is the word that we talked about at the beginning of this study when we talked about how Paul calls himself a slave to Christ Jesus. It's a word for slave. Being born in the likeness of men. Then in verse eight, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Jesus actively humbled himself this humility wasn't something that happened to Jesus. It was something that he chose, and he chose again and again and again as he lived on earth in a human body. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. makes us think of the scene right in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying with the Father, Father, if there is any way for this to happen apart f- from me being separated from you, would you take this cup from me? And the Father doesn't take the cup from him, but he drinks it then willingly, the cup of God's wrath so he humbled himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death. And death, right, it is the most humbling thing for all of us, isn't it? I I signed a will this week, which says, like, what's gonna happen to my stuff when I die? Very humbling. Because you realize, uh, I can't take any of this with me. And one day, uh, we signed a whole kind of course of documents, many of which we hope we never have to use, but that one, it will come into play at some point it will be necessary because I will die. That's true for all of us and dust returns to dust. But death is the most humbling reality for us and Jesus even stepped into that most humbling reality of what it means to be a human. But it doesn't stop there. Then in verses 9 through 11 we get the exaltation of Christ. So in those first few verses we have what we would call the humiliation of Christ which started as at his conception and it's encompasses his whole life. But then there's the turn. That's what we get in verse nine. And this is starting to speak now of the exaltation of Christ when God raised Christ up. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So this is speaking of the resurrection, but not just the resurrection, also the ascension of Christ. That Christ, when he died, that then he rose again and after rising again, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So that, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That that Christ's journey to his exaltation, to his glorification was through the humility of the cross. And as he willingly submitted himself to that, the Father, God the Father was pleased to then glorify his son, to give him a name that everyone at some point that everyone will bow down to in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The Father was pleased to set him up as the king over all creation. And that's the song that Paul says, that's the song that we set our lives to. Jesus speaks of it in John 13. This is in the Last Supper. Uh, as Jesus is moving very intentionally toward the cross as it's just hours away. And this is what it says. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus, fully knowing who he was, the pre-incarnate Son of God, fully knowing where he was going, which was back to the right hand of the Father, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is just a, a really condensed picture of what we've just talked about. That Jesus, knowing full well who he was, knowing all of his identity, all of the power that he had been given by the Father, chosen with that power to serve his people. He wrapped a towel around his waist and he washed the disciples' feet, which was an incredibly humbling thing for someone to do at the time. It would still be humbling now, wouldn't it? To wash somebody's feet? If you imagine if you've been wearing Chacos and you've been hiking all day, how gross that would be. But then imagine that's just you lived all the time in Chacos. I know someone who did that. It did not smell good, right? And Jesus came and he washed his disciples' feet, and that's what he does for us that he came to serve. He came to serve by giving his life, by buying and purchasing our redemption. And, and that's not just something that stopped there, but it's an ongoing work of Christ as he serves us. One commentator says it like this. He said, service and self-giving love are the highest of divine attributes. But that's what we see in this passage, that service and self-giving love are the highest of divine attributes. And that service and self-giving love had a target, and it was you, his people, we have this little rhyming children's Bible, and it says, you are his treasure and great prize. And that's the hymn that Paul is saying, I want you to soak in that, I want you to hear it, I want you to sing it, I want it to be sung over you. Okay, so that's the, that's the model of Christ. So what does it mean then for us to have the mind of Christ? We see that in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And what, I, what we have to see in this verse is that it brings us back to our union with Christ, that our union with Christ is where the joy is. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say have this mindset that's like Christ Jesus or have this in your mind. No, it's saying have this mind. So there's a deeper reality here than just calling us to simply imitating Christ as a good role model. People are very, people are very content with Christ being a good role model, Right? I guess we would say Jesus being a good role model. They wouldn't call him Christ probably in that situation. But can we be honest about something? Uh, If Jesus was not exalted, right, if he is not the pre-incarnate son of God who then through his suffering was lifted to glory by the Father, um, that's not an example that I don't think any, uh, it's not an example I think any of us would want to follow, is it? I mean, think about his life. Think about what happened to him. It's a guy who was just embarrassed. He was put to shame, abandoned, and deserted by his friends in his moment of greatest need. He was betrayed. One of his friends received money to betray him into the hands of the people that were gonna kill him. That's what it looked like for him to look out for the interests of others. That doesn't seem like a very compelling role model, does it? If it was just a role, if there was no resurrection, right? If Jesus is just a role model, there was no resurrection. What we have is the tragic life of a tragic man. That he was born into this world poor, right? Uh, out of wedlock in a time when that was really looked down upon. That he lost his father probably at a young age, N- never really had much of anything, and that then when he started to, when he tried to start a rebellion, uh, an insurrection. He was tried for it and hung on a tree like a criminal. So what we're being called to is not simply modeling our lives after a good person. Jesus' life isn't a model for that. But, be, but because of his exaltation, because he was not just a man, because he was glorified and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, because we are united with Christ, now humility can actually become a beautiful thing, not an embarrassing thing. that his humiliation is what led to his glory and his humiliation is what led to our glory. And so now we can celebrate the humility and all of the freedom and joy that it brings. In fact, we get to participate in his glory as we pattern our lives after that now. And this doesn't mean that as we participate in his glory, it doesn't mean that we would be exalted or that at our name every knee would bow and every tongue confess that we're Lord's it means that we're freed from seeking our own glory. And then we get to live in the blessedness of humility, kind of basking in the glory that comes from Christ. Like I think about this the other week, this was this week. I was sitting out at Ugly Mugs, kind of on the patio, on one of the nice days this last week, just soaking in the sun. Like this is amazing, right? I'm not generating the light of the sun, but I get to appreciate and bask in the warmth and the glow of it. That's what it means to participate in the glory of Christ. But as we humble ourselves, we're not generating our own glory, but we're getting to soak in, participate in the warmth of that glory as it as it comes to us. There's this little book called The Freedom of Self, Self-Forgetfulness. I would highly recommend it. 50 pages that will change your life. Uh, and it's all about what it means to walk in the humility of the Christian life. And I just want to read for you a description of how uh, Tim Keller here talks about what the experience of humility can be like. And just for the record, as a review from last week, we talked about this. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, right? Humility is thinking of yourself less. That's an important thing to be clear on. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself like beating yourself up with how bad you are. Humility is thinking of yourself less. That's the freedom that we're called to in Christ. Keller says, the more we get to understand the gospel, the more we want to change. Friends, wouldn't you want to be a person who does not need honor? nor is afraid of it? Someone who does not lust for recognition, nor, on the other hand, is frightened to death of it? Don't you want to be the kind of person who, when they see themselves in a mirror or reflected in a shop window, does not admire what they see, but does not cringe either? Wouldn't you like to be the type of person who, in their imaginary life, does not sit around fantasizing about hitting self-esteem home runs, daydreaming about successes that give them the edge over others? or perhaps you tend to beat yourself up and be tormented by regrets, wouldn't you like to be free of them? Wouldn't you like to be the skater who wins silver and yet is thrilled about those three triple jumps that the gold medal winner did? To love it the way you love a sunrise, just to love the fact that it was done? For it not to matter whether it was your success or their success, not to care if they did it or you did it, that you would be as happy as they, that they did it as if you had done it yourself because you're happy just to see it. you will probably say that you don't know anybody like that. But this is the possibility for you and me if we keep going where Paul is going. Because he loves me and he accepts me, I do not have to do things just to build up my resume. I don't have to do things just to make me look good. I can do things for the joy of doing them. I can help people to help people. Not so I can feel better about myself, not so I can fill up the emptiness. That's the invitation of this passage, that we would get to live in the freedom and the joy of humility. And the encouragement is that we would have this mind among ourselves. So we could make all kinds of applications of what it would look like to be people who embrace this kind of humility and live it out in our world. All kinds of applications for that. But this verse directs us really specifically to have this mind amongst ourselves. That yes, we would have it as friends, that we would have it as neighbors, that we would have it as spouses, that we would have it as mothers and fathers and roommates, as we would have it that we would have it as people who are in discipleship groups with each other. We would have it in all those places, but that we would have it also as a church here amongst ourselves. And what does that look like? We talked about it in verse four. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this w- we touched on this last week, but I want to remind you guys again, like Lindsay talked about this, this reopening plan, right? How we're phasing back into doing church together. This is actually a place where it's going to require a lot of humility for our congregation to come back together. That people have wildly different expectations for what this should look like. There are probably people who aren't here because this does not look like yet what they think it should look like. And until we're full capacity, no registration, no room, or no masks, people don't want to come back until it's as it should be. I always want to encourage you, if that's you, to have humility in that place. To know that you need this, and, and we need you to be here. And for some people, uh, this is going to be, it's, it may feel like it's too soon, too much, too fast. And let me be very clear. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna try to manipulate you with the faith over fear slogan. Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. But one of the things we have to acknowledge is that this has been a hard year. It's been scary. And so to come back into a room with a lot of people uh, can be a scary thing. Yes. What I also want to say is, in humility, don't let that fear be the thing that controls you. Would you, would you talk to Jesus about that? and live not out of fear but out of the conviction of how he's calling you to care for yourself and for your neighbors and for your community. And part of us walking in this together humbly as a community is honoring the choices that each other are making as we're trying to seek Jesus in it, absolutely. I'm gonna ask that that you would extend that kind of grace to us as well. I am sure in the plans that we're making, there are gonna be things that we do wrong or could have or should have done differently. I tell you that is already true for the last year. And so the invitation to this passage and the practice of this passage isn't some kind of theoretical idea of what we might do eventually if we ever run into conflict in our church. This is real for right now. And that us learning to practice this kind of humility here with each other now matters for where God is calling us because as a community, one of the things we're excited for is to go out and serve this community, right? For us to do that is gonna take, it it requires humility. And we get to practice that, lay the foundation of that here and now. And it's really appropriate that today is the day that we get to take the Lord's Supper together for the first time in a long time. Because at the communion table, we are reminded of our need for Christ. That the thing that unites us is actually our need for him and our acknowledgement of our need for him. That here at the communion table, we humble ourselves and we recognize that we are a people who are united in our need for a savior that that's not true on certain days or at certain times, but that that's true all the time. It's at the communion table that we are reminded that Jesus came for us, for a people who are broken, people who doubt, people who sin, people who hurt others and people who have been hurt. People who instead of living humbly and for the service of others so often live prideful and arrogant lives. And that because of those things, we're united in our need for Jesus. That we're also united in what our Jesus has done for us. That we're united in the fact that it is our Jesus who has left the heights of his glory and he's come and he's washed our feet. And this communion table is a place where we get to experience and taste and feel that reality, even if it's just a tiny little wafer. It's a place that we get to embrace the, sacrificial, the sacrifice that he's made for us to make us his people. And then it, it unifies us as we await his return. As we remember that this risen Lord is coming back for us. That there is a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we look forward to that day when we'll experience his glory with him. So, communion then, this communion table is a place that calls us to humility. I'm going to read for us out of 1 Corinthians 11 23 through 26. These are the instructions that apo- the Apostle Paul, the same guy who wrote Philippians, gave to the church in Corinth regarding the Lord's Supper. And he says this in verse 23. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, that's the same night that he wrapped the towel around him and he went and washed the disciples' feet. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this clu- cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that's what we're doing today. We're remembering and proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So We just invite you, uh, if you're here and you have the elements with you, that in these first two songs, there's just first, well, you can, yeah, in the first two songs, uh, There'll be space for you to pray and to reflect on your need for Christ, on what he's done for you, the gift of his humble, self-sacrificial love for you. and would invite you that when you're ready, you can take this, uh, you can take this. You can fold down the kneelers and do it there if you'd like. And this passage that Paul gives us, it also, it comes with a warning. It says this in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And what Paul is saying is that this this table, this communion that we're gonna take, that this is for people who have acknowledged and are unified in acknowledging their need for Jesus. And if that's not you, we're so glad that you're here. And would encourage you to think about and pray about, meditate on what we've been talking about, this, the person and the work of Christ. And, and would encourage you, don't take this yet. That this, that this would be for when you've come to a place where you want to acknowledge your need and the saving power of Jesus Christ in your life. And if you are in Christ, but there are places in your heart where you are saying no to the lordship of Jesus, then this passage is also a reminder that the table isn't for you right now either. That if there are places where you're refusing to bend your knee to the Lord, then he would say, no, deal with that first. And that's because the lordship of Jesus knows no boundaries. That it covers all of our life. And that's because the love of Jesus knows no bounds and covers everything in our life. Because Jesus' love for us is total. And so this doesn't mean that if, you've <laughs> that if you've sinned recently, this table is not for you because then none of us would ever take it, okay? It's just it's a reminder that if there are places in your life where you are consistently, knowingly rejecting the lordship of Jesus, then this table isn't for you right now and would love to talk to you about that and help you in those places after. Like I said, these, these first two songs are gonna be reflective and they're gonna move into a space of celebrating what Jesus has done for us. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up uh, and would invite you guys to take these elements as as you as you would. Uh, let me pray for us. God, we uh, we are so thankful, uh, thankful and humbled, Lord, that you, in knowing our true need even more than we do, Lord, would come for us. We're thankful for the self-sacrificial nature of your love, uh, for the for the self-giving at the cross, Lord, that we uh, get to appropriate uh, through faith. Ask that you would meet us here, Lord, as we participate with these physical reminders of who you are and what you've done for us. Let me pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.